0: If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
1: From the Wall Street Journal, this is Instant Message. I'm David Pierce. This week on the show, something a little bit different and special. We're all in New York for one of the journal's conferences called the Future of Everything Festival. It was three days full of talks about what's coming in money, Style, culture, tech, politics, Hollywood, and so many other things. And for the next while, we're going to bring you some of the best moments from the show. Uh, here with me to help guide you through all of what we're about to listen to is Joanna Stern in person.
2: In person, I can see David, you, David. I'm. I see you. I see your laptop.
1: Uh, we're in a new studio in New York. It's we're beautiful. In person, this is like literally just the best day.
2: I know, but I'm it's so weird because I'm like I'm looking at you when we're podcasting. Can we put up a wall here?
1: I, yeah. look at, I look at pictures of you guys normally. I have large oh. sort of life-size like cardboard cutout That's photos nice. on the wall. It's really – it's lovely.
2: I have one of that of, of Mims in my office, but it's on a dartboard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we should say Christopher Mims, who's usually here, is on a train somewhere between New York and Baltimore at the moment. and we And think? offered to Skype in, but – Anyone who's ever been on Amtrak will know that that is the worst idea of all time.
2: Or anyone who's ever known Christopher Mims and his technical difficulties know that's
1: the worst idea. Oh, boy. Mims troubleshooting Skype on an Amtrak train is every Amtrak writer's worst nightmare. (laughs) But okay, so let's talk about the show. So you hosted a bunch of things, including the like capstone moment of it all, which was Trevor Noah and a bunch of people from The Daily Show, um, which I think people can watch in its entirety on the journal's website, right?
2: I believe you can watch it on it. Twitter.
1: Oh, it's on Twitter. Oh, yes. okay. So that that's actually true. So all of the stuff we have here plus more is, is available
2: is on our website. On our
1: website, on Twitter. YouTube, some of our podcasts maybe. have been
2: put on other episodes of uh, or other some right the future of everything yep. show the future has of everything of these.
1: yeah. So there's tons of stuff and it's all great and we'll put a bunch of links to stuff in the in the show notes for this episode. So, uh, but what what was your favorite part of the of the whole show? Did anything jump out to you other than? I mean, all the my stuff you personal did?
2: favorite part was not um, collapsing on stage when interviewing Trevor Noah and four other writers on or four other writers and producers on his show. So Which I think me, you were
1: genuinely worried about doing. I it was
2: genuinely talk. so nervous; I thought I would pass out. So, I for me, I was just thrilled that I made it through alive. That was my personal favorite moment. But um, I don't know. There were so many great talks, and I was. I we go to a lot of journal conferences. You, you and I, yeah. and this just felt like the amount of both the people in the audience and the people on the stage just really engaged with whatever they were talking about was just phenomenal. So I I, I can't pick a single speaker.
1: Fair enough. All right, well, so let's dive into a bunch of these. And the, the first one we're going to show is, is one of yours. And it was, uh, as I was putting all this together, one of the things that really sort of struck out to me was that we wound up talking about all of these different things, but the question so many people kept answering is like, what does it mean to be a person in the world now? It's like we have so much technology. It's in so many things. Everything's changing so fast. Like at work, at home, as parents, uh, you know, as when we're dating. Like how does any of this work? And what is what are we supposed to do and be? And how do we act? And it just kept coming up over and over and over. Yeah. So we're going to start with a bunch of those. And one of the ones that I think got into this really well was your interview with uh, Alexis Ohanian. So uh, we're we're gonna play a clip, but can you sort of tee up what we're about to hear? Like, who is Alexis, and and what are we about to listen to?
2: Who is Alexis? Actually, that's like one of the first questions I asked him because I I asked him the first question I asked him was, "Are, are is it okay if I call you Serena Williams' husband?" Okay. <laughs> because that feels like who you are now. So he is Serena Williams' husband, and to me, that's like pretty much probably how much of the world knows him. But he's also a co-founder of Reddit. He is just a, a sort of a tech luminary, I guess. As, as in, is the best way to describe what he does now. He's in, he's running a, a, a VC firm now. I believe it's called Incentivized Capital. And what he's really been doing, at least since he became a dad, so he's married to Serena Williams and they had a kid. I think she, he said that she is now almost two, I believe in months. Parents count in months. I and know. Honestly, people say months to me and I'm just like, how old is your freaking child. <laughs> um so since they they had uh, Olympia Olympia's first name is actually Alexis so it's like Alexis Jr but they they call her Olympia. He's been talking all about how he took parental leave. He took 16 weeks of parental leave. He's been talking about what needs to be done to make men more comfortable taking parental leave. He's been talking a lot about work-life balance. He's been talking a lot about the hustle porn of the world, which I had no idea what this was. Uh, So I brought that up on stage. And I think that's one of the clips we're going to play now. But does he explain it in this? Yeah, that's actually perfect. That's exactly
1: where we start with hustle porn.
2: So after leave, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: I mean, really, I've just said this to most people, like after leave is when the shit sets in, right? Mm. Like, that's when real life happens. And you've got to juggle things. And uh, obviously, you guys are are, uh, both very hardworking, successful people. But when it comes to that, to the balancing of, of work and life, what do you do? But also, what can companies be doing better and have policies around that? How, do, how does that balance play in as well?
3: I, I will always struggle with it. I know my wife talks very publicly, too, about struggling with it. I think we all do. Um, I love the fact that I'm now getting asked more as a man, like, how do you manage to balance your family life and your career? That's great, because uh, a, a businessman in my position normally doesn't get asked, asked that question, and we should be asking them more often. Um, and so it's hard, and and I think the good news is, we have, for, for, for lots of work, um, we, we actually kind of see the future of work basically being robots and cyborgs. Uh, robots being the work that ends up being fully automated, which is sort of non-creative routine work, and then cyborgs uh, being us humans who are able to do our jobs more efficiently, more effectively using software. And I think for so much of this work that ends up in the realm of the cyborgs, um, I mean, a a very dumb example of this is like Slack. Um, there, There are more and more tools that are now allowing many of us to be able to do our jobs with some more flexibility, and I think more investments in software that help support a decentralized workforce are, are going to be crucial. And we're seeing, I mean, we, we, we meet companies right at the earliest stages, and these, we get a front row seat to the future in a lot of ways. It's not always what ends up happening, but more and more now we're seeing companies that are built from day one as decentralized companies. And so we're gonna see more and more multi-billion dollar companies that started and grew and, and, and affected the world in their own way without ever having like a central headquarters. And that starts to change how we think about even how these orgs are created. And so how does that all happen? Well, it's through software and through different attitudes around how to build company culture and how to do all that. And so I think first and foremost, companies should be embracing the fact that these tools need to be a part of their workforce, um, software to make this happen. uh, And that for a lot of the work that gets done, uh, we need to understand that it cannot be purely associated with a, a butt in a seat in an office and I think I think we're seeing that happen.
2: Yeah, I mean, for uh, me, it's and I use a lot of these tools as well. But I kind of and I want to ask about you know, how you separate the tech from when you're you're with Olympia. Because for me, mm. you know, it's great that I've got Slack and I can keep working at you know I can get on the train and keep working for a little bit and then I'm doing bath time. But then I've got like three Slack messages and I'm mm-hmm. answering those as I'm trying to give them a bath. How do we you know how do we set those limits mm-hmm. and like is. Do we, and then follow up, I want to ask a little bit about what, how you're thinking about technology in, in terms of parenting with Olympia.
3: It is, it is a challenge. I actually just had to get on Slack and tell, <laughs> tell one of our uh, partners to like, get off Slack for a little bit, take his time, because he's on leave. And it's so yeah. tempting right. to want to hop into a conversation. And that's good. Like, we're, we're, we're so, how fortunate am I that we have employees who are so thrilled to do their work that they want to keep doing it? But, um, you get FOMO. You do. And and so... Work FOMO. I try. We, we, we It is definitely, we, we, we can definitely be improving in terms of the policies that we set um, to really codify um, and show this. And I know as a leader, I'm guilty of it too, where there are times when it's just like, no, there's that spur of the moment and it just, it, right, you, you pop up the slack.
1: Next up, we have two clips that actually directly address each other, which is kind of amazing. They were on different stages on different days and basically had a conversation with each other. Uh, They're both talking about the future of work and how software fits into our lives as employees and people and whether the tools we're using, like Slack and Microsoft Teams and Trello and all the rest are actually helping us get more done. And even Alexis Ohanian brought this up, talking about how tools, like how how it changes bath time when Slack is pinging you over there. I think that was one of the things you guys were talking about. Uh, So first up, among these two, Cal Henderson, the CTO
4: of Slack, talking with Chip Cutter, journal reporter. And so is Slack meant to be an email killer? Is it meant to get teams talking without email?
5: Um, I I think that email isn't going to disappear, well, maybe ever, right? I've said previously, it's like the cockroach of the internet. Even if you don't like it, you'll never be able to fully eradicate it. We still have like... We still have fax numbers for businesses, and fax was never super popular. Um, and it's still around today in 2019, and fax is going to be here 10 years from now. So like, the idea that we'll ever unseat email, um, you know, while we're still, you know, within my lifetime, certainly seems very unlikely. But I think what we will do, what we will see, and what we're seeing already, is the reduction in certain contexts. So, like, email. As at all was just taking the memo and putting it online. you know we have a subject line, you have a greeting, you have your like uh, salutation, you have a footer about please don 't pre- print this save the trees don 't forward this you know there 's a whole lot of infrastructure that goes around it um, which has like accumulated and kind of calcified and there 's that little nugget in the middle of the thing that you know like after asking after somebody 's children there 's the actual request somewhere embedded in the middle there um, and For the people that you work with constantly, like day in, day out, your kind of first team, it's a terrible medium to communicate, and that's you know, and we've seen that change even ahead of tools like Slack because of the rise of the smartphone. So maybe a decade ago, you used to like email with your friends to organize going out in an evening. You wouldn't do that anymore. You'd use SMS. WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, uh, because it's just a tool much more suited to purpose for people that you communicate with really regularly. And I think the same thing is happening in the workplace, that um, email just doesn't really make sense as a way that you talk to the people you talk to all day. Um, But it still has a very big place and will for a long time for the people that you don't talk to every day, for the people that work at different companies or perhaps in a different part of a large organization, um, or your vendors or partners. where. E- email isn't going to be dislodged anytime in the next 50 years. Wow, 50 years. And you still use it yourself? I mean, I, I, I email with uh, people that I work with who aren't on Slack, so, you know, our, our partners or our vendors. But I spend, now compared to, say, 10 years ago, I spend way less time in my email inbox. It's something I check once a day, maybe, as opposed to, like, once every 20 minutes. Yeah.
4: But what do you make of this backlash that has happened that you know, it's sometimes called the slacklash of, of people who feel that now we've gone from email oftentimes to these group chat apps that now we're being pinged constantly by people across our companies. Um, and that kind of interrupts us. It takes us out of deep work uh, into kind of just constantly responding to people. Uh, one of the speakers who's on stage tomorrow, Jason Fried, here at this conference, he has made a big case about this, just saying it's, it's hard to work like that. So do you think that some of the critics have, have a point?
5: I think that when any new kind of technology is adopted in the workplace, and we definitely saw this with email, um, it takes some time to understand how we should map that to the way we communicate and interact.
4: How forceful do you think Slack should be in telling people on the other side, hey, this message actually doesn't look like it's helpful right now, or this person looks like they're in deep work, you shouldn't be bothering them. I mean, how much more forceful could Slack get in this?
5: Um, I think that we really want to put that control in the hands of in the hands of the people receiving messages. You know, I think that one of the big, you know, if you think about the the change between how we see people use email historically and how we and how we pe- see people use Slack, um, one is the the change from the push to the pull model. So, email like single kind of private by default. You're you're um, pushing that communication and choosing who can receive it, um, and. The switching to slack, so the the channel based model of um, messages are broadcast by default, available to more people, so d- driving transparency within within organizations, but also the idea that it switches to a pull model. You choose what channels to subscribe to, and you choose what is important to you. And I think that, oh, as we see large organizations adopt Slack, there are we want to put those controls in the hands of the the person doing the the pulling of the information. So, For instance, you heavily use starred channels within Slack myself. So I choose these are the the channels that I know are very important. Like anything that gets posted into there, I want to know about that. I want to respond to that immediately. Here's the bulk of channels which are interesting to me, but I don't need to stay on top of and don't need to think of like an inbox. And then there's all these muted channels, which I join but are not super important. And I think that putting that control on the receiver side is is, uh, kind of a key to how we would like people to use Slack, but also is not what people are used to on the email side. I guess, historically, you had some people who were like deep email experts and had all of their like Outlook folder rules for where things went, but that's the minority of people. But putting more of that control on the receiver side, I think is important.
1: Then later in the week, we had a panel with Jason Fried, the CEO of Basecamp and the author of a new book called It Doesn't Have to be Crazy at Work. He was interviewed by Nikki Waller, the journal's editor of Live Journalism, and she asked Jason about what Cal just said.
6: You know, yesterday Cal Henderson at Slack was here, and he said it's on
2: users to actually manage their notifications. That yes, it may be crazy at work, but these tools are built with ways to mute things and put on
6: away messages. Do you agree with that?
0: No, I think it's a cop out. I think specific tools are created. To every piece of software has a bias. Every piece of software is designed to work a certain way and encourage a certain type of, u- of behavior. Like, all product development, good or bad, there's a golden path. And if the golden path is to say, hey, you don't, you're using it wrong, that's a cop out. And that's actually, I think, really um, disrespectful to, to users to say, you, g- you have to figure out yourself. Um, and that this tool that we made is really good at interrupting you, but you need to push back at this tool that we made. I just think that's, that's unfair. And
2: it's kind of like food companies where you get the big thing of peanut M&M's, and yeah. they're like, but the serving size. But the
0: ser- right, right. The
2: bag. And you're
0: like, totally. Yeah, so I, I think um, uh, it's, it's, it's not fair. Um, I understand that sometimes you create something, you don't know how it's going to take off. You don't know the kind of impact it's going to have and you might need to make some changes. That's totally fair. But I think at this point, like Slack's been around for a number of years now, to, to say the user needs to figure it out like five years in or however long they've been around, that's unfair. I think like a year or two in where you go, oh, my God, we created this amazing thing that a lot of people are using. Um, what can we do to help fix that? Uh, that's one thing. But to still be saying that feels wrong to me. Like, for example, in Basecamp, our product, we have a feature called Work Can Wait. And this allows every employee who uses Basecamp of any company to set their own work schedule. Say like from nine to five, I'm working. Outside of those hours, you cannot reach me. Basecamp will technically hold my calls until the next morning. Therefore, somebody else who happens to be working at six or seven or eight at night for whatever reason, if they want to get a hold of me, they can't through Basecamp because Basecamp won't let them break through the barrier because I'm off of work right now. So I think it is important for software products to, just to help create Barriers and boundaries for people, so they can turn off work and not be constantly pulled back into it.
2: What are the kind of companies who are allowing that sort of tool? I mean, where are the big thinkers? Where are the fixes?
0: Well, I mean, I mean, there's some things I've seen recently. Uh, Google Calendar, I think, has something now that that ha- like, if you're going to try and book a, a meeting with somebody or whatever, it's like, well, this person. This is like nighttime, or this is off people's Still schedule. do you do it, though? Well, of course, because shared calendars are the worst invention in modern software history. Um,
2: Tell us how you. you want really me to get feel. into that?
1: Yeah.
0: So, let's go. so a shared calendar basically is a game of Tetris, and there's all these colored blocks, and you get to put colored blocks on other people's board, and you get to steal other people's time. You get to take other people's time. Now, yes, they could reject the meeting request, but, but then you're not a team player, so you, you can't really do that. So you basically accept pretty much every meeting request that comes your way, which means someone else is constantly chipping away at your day and taking your time. And companies always like to talk about how time is money, um, but no one's letting you take money like that from each other. Like You can't reach into someone's wallet and just like take 20 bucks. That would be like, that's theft. But time, no, no theft. You can take as much time from other people as you want that is broken and modern calendars allow that to happen so at base camp we don't we don't have shared calendars i can't see what anyone else's schedule looks like and no one can see what mine looks like
2: how do you find time to get together
0: then? You ask somebody. What? You say, hey, are, are you free at Thursday? At, or Thursday at three o'clock? Like, I, I want to catch up with you about something. And they'll say yes or no. It's a negotiation.
7: Technology is puzzling to me.
0: <laughs> this, this asking technology. <laughs> Where you just kind of have a, a, an actual negotiation and conversation because time is valuable. And you negotiate and you have conversations about things that are valuable. The moment you make something so easy to take from someone else that has no value. And if your time has no value, what are you supposed to do with it? Like it worked, like that's all you have to do your work. And so I think that modern tools like Slack, like chat tools, like calendaring tools, they actually are making work worse for people. They might make it easier on the surface to do certain things, but the things that those things are doing aren't really beneficial and I think they're actually hurting people. So And by the way, real quick just to be Yes. Like I believe that chat, instant messaging and schedules are valuable things sometimes, but when the default way to converse, to have any conversations with people or to take someone's time, that's when you get into trouble.
1: Okay, let's switch gears here a little bit. Uh, we talk all the time about all the different ways we talk and communicate online. There's public and private and Twitter and Instagram and group chats and sliding into people's DMs and everything. And, Joanna, one of the ones you did this week was talking to... I think her name is Seema Sistani. Is that yes, how you pronounce good that? Good job. Yeah. Yes. First try. Yeah. Uh, and she's the CEO of House Party, which is an app we've actually talked about on this show before. Uh, but why, why her? What was interesting about House Party?
2: I was so prepared for the interview. I didn't even have to like study up on her because I was like, we talked about this on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And Christopher Mims taught me what House Party is.
1: Perfect. So what? give us like the 30-second the version.
2: We really talked about House Party being the anti-Facebook, which everyone's trying to be the anti-Facebook right now. But it was sort of designed from that the ground up that way, even before the tech clash to Facebook and everything else, in the sense that it's a really private social network, and they don't like to even call it a social network. It's really just video chatting, but like this real live presence, so you can just see where all your friends are hanging out. And so we discussed that. We discussed what I thought was was what I do think is a very ambitious idea of hers that you that, that they don't need advertising to go forward in in their world of social media. Again, she doesn't like calling it social media or they, maybe she says she's she'll say it's not a social she'll say it's a social media but not a network. Either way
1: It's also nebulous. It's all, yeah.
2: <laughs> um, either way, she's really ambitious she has a really ambitious goal to not make advertising part of this, and that data collection doesn't need to be what guides the business model here. They're teaming up, and this is what we talked about on on the previous podcast with that about House Party, is that they're teaming up with game makers and how to make more collaborative, uh, use House Party sort of a, a, as on top of other apps.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. And so the, the part we're going to play here is actually, I think, the very beginning of the interview. And, and you guys were talking about this sense of what it means, the sort of the difference between calling somebody and just being together.
2: Yeah, and, and this post, not post, but there are other networks that have text and emojis and all of these GIFs and other ways of communicating and why it's so important that we we sort of be face-to-face even though we're not really face-to-face with House Party.
1: I like it. Okay, so here's Joanna with Seema Sistani, whose name I just pronounced correctly twice in a row, uh, the CEO of House Party.
2: My big question is for us olds in the room, I mean, how is this... Different than FaceTime, or we're so old we know what Skype
8: is. (laughs) So, I mean, those are all utilities. And uh, if you want to call someone with video, then certainly that's a a use case. But what we're trying to build on is a concept called presence. And, you know, I would liken it to uh, AIM basically, where it would say, you're online, so suddenly it wasn't a really, uh, it didn't feel like an interruption to reach out to somebody, and the same is true for video chat. If uh, I get notified that Joanna's in the house and I have to be in a an Uber and I only have like two minutes, I'll pop in too and say, hey, like what's going on? But if you're calling me and I feel like, oh, I only have two minutes, like what does she want? Um, I, I might not connect with you. And so that's the... Um, Emotion—that is—that's—that's the thing that we're trying to plug into—and this particularly um, resonant with our demographic, who, you know, I don't know. Have you ever tried to call somebody, uh, you know, a decade younger than you? At least for me, if I call my brother, he picks up the phone and says, "What's wrong?" So, um, you know, if he sees me in the house, he's much more likely to join, um, and it's certainly brought my family closer together.
2: You keep saying in the house, and I'm like, you live with all these people. <laughs> yeah. if he sees me in the house, I'm like, he would just talk to you face to face. But it sounds like that's what you're trying to
8: replicate. Here. Exactly. I mean, the, ho- the house party is truly a metaphor for what we want to feel like. It's that um, the organic nature of being at somebody's house and moving in between rooms. I mean, effectively, that's what we have is different rooms. So if um, I'm in the house, I can have up to eight people that I'm chatting with live. But there are different rooms. So if you and I are in a room and my mom Comes in the house, she doesn't get dropped into our room, right? She's in another one, and I can swipe in between. Um, and, you know, particularly for that demographic, it's like hanging out in the high school parking lot.
2: So there's no, just to clarify, there's no text based communication in the app.
8: There is. You can send notes. Um, and we're pretty intentional about calling it notes because it's not meant to be a, uh, you know, long form asynchronous communication. But perhaps, like, you miss someone and you want to shoot them a quick note, you can do that just like passing notes. But the idea is really live, hella synchronous, and around presence. Yeah,
2: it feels like house party in a way is kind of like the anti, and everyone's trying to be the anti Facebook right now. But you also feel like the anti Twitter or any of these social networks where everything's public. The anti LinkedIn, maybe even anti TikTok. Is was that designed this way, or you just sort of? all came at the right time where House Party's got its own sort of more private social network and we've now got this backlash to these public social networks.
8: Yeah, I mean no, we certainly didn't build it as the anti anything. I, I still use all of those platforms. It's more that we felt that there was a solution that that was needed out there, particularly for the younger demographic who's feeling, I mean I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that they're on the precipice of a loneliness epidemic. And they're spending so much time on their devices, uh, in their rooms, and what we're trying to bring is humanity back into connecting. And particularly as a mother, it's something that I feel like is essential for us to try to build back into the way we communicate online.
2: Right. It shouldn't be face-to-emoji communication or face-to-memoji
8: communication. I want I want my daughter to know the right response to excitement, not just the right emoji, for sure.
1: <laughs> Next up, while we're on the subject of communication and togetherness, let's play a bit from an interview between Mandy Ginsburg, the CEO of The Match Group, which includes Match.com, Tinder, and more, and The Journal's Eric Schwartzel. Mandy had plenty of thoughts on all the ways technology affects relationships both now and going forward. Has it
6: oh affected how you- See, the thing is you take this and my husband watches this afterwards. Uh, we, could, we, could
1: uh... <laughs> we could apply it to the workplace. We could apply it to the workplace. We could apply it to your kids. I'm just wondering how it colors your personal relationships since you know more than pretty much anyone here, what makes people tick?
6: Um, you know, I think, well, first of all, like you know, despite the fact that there's a lot of communication on apps, I mean, as I said at the end of the day, this is what people do. They mm-hmm. meet and they look at each other in the eye and they figure out if there's real chemistry and if they want to go out on a second date, which it sounds like this poor guy in the video went on 17 first dates and no second dates. Um, I do actually think it's very important for people to get off of our apps and out in the real world, meeting each other, which feels very weird for an internet company, that mm-hmm. that is our desire: is we want people to meet in the real world. Um, but what you know, what I will say: I have a 20-year-old daughter, and she actually she's a university student, and she has used the apps, and. You know, I, I, we do have lots of conversations about, you know, about everything from, like, safety and security to privacy. And I think this is a world we're entering in now where, you know, the, the safe, safety for young women, which is really important to me as a female CEO of this company, and then just privacy and making sure that you, you really understand sort of the information that you're giving, and also just making sure that you know, as a college student, how do you make sure you you keep safe?
1: Mm-hmm. What's your, what is your biggest security concern right now?
6: Well, I think that you know, for us, we're we're a reflection of society, and you're meeting strangers, and so I would say, you know, it's really important that women um, do what is like they should tell their friends they're going somewhere. They should never jump in a car with someone. They shouldn't meet people at their apartments, and so I would say that you know people in the world where people are meeting strangers you just have to take precaution and never you just can't let your guard down and I would tell that to everyone whether they're using apps or whether they meet someone at a bar mm-hmm.
1: but before we jump to audience questions I wanted to ask you we are at the future of everything festival so I'm curious looking into the future what you think the next swipe will be what will be the next invention or you know piece of technology that introduces the next wave of online dating
6: I really believe that the holy grail for us in this category is being able to get closer and do a better job of predicting chemistry. Because at the end of the day, you, you text someone and you meet them at a bar or for a cup of coffee. And if we can do a better job using video technology, voice, um, better AI. So by the time you actually meet and have that face-to-face conversation and you're not sitting there saying, what is this going to end? I'm never going on a second date. And so for us, it's really around using all those inputs and technology to help us really with better success rates, which is all around getting people on that second date.
1: Coming up a couple more things, forget the theme. We're just going to tell you about some of the coolest futuristic tech we heard about at the festival.
0: If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
1: Welcome back. Okay, a couple more fun ones here for you. These are less about the sort of how to be human questions and are just cool looks at cool new technology. First up, Christopher Mims talked to Dave Ferguson, the CEO of a company called Neuro that's working on futuristic self-driving transportation. Joanna, did you get to see this one? I didn't. It was really neat. I really enjoyed it because he's. Oh wait, I has, saw the video. The video is cool, right? Yeah. It was it was good stuff, but he has this totally different idea about self driving which is which is what neuro is working on and it's what everybody's working on and the idea is not like it'll be a taxi that you use to get around which is what everybody else is doing he has this idea that they can move stuff around and that actually if you're thinking about stuff and not people you're doing a totally different thing
2: right i think i saw the vid- the video's like the little robot on wheels like moving through a city trying to like deliver food or something
1: yeah 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 so okay so we're going to play a chunk of this and and they talk about what it means to try and get robots to deliver stuff and not people so
7: One thing that I find interesting about the problem you're tackling is that you have usefully constrained the problem to the limits of what self-driving technology can do. And it is very limited right now. That's why you don't have self-driving Ubers on the road already. So could you talk about the, the, the things that you don't do, which in some ways define your business model?
9: Yeah, so great question, and this is core to why we're working on goods transportation. I, I think if you, look, if you look in general at the space of self-driving, almost everyone is very focused on passenger transportation, and, and I think there's very, very good, good reason for that. It's obviously a massive market. It will have a huge societal impact. When we solve that, we can save up to a million lives a year worldwide with that technology. But I think one, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is if you look at all of the personal vehicle trips that are taken in the U.S., it's roughly $400 billion a year, 43% of those are for shopping or running errands. Now, obviously, every one of those trips you could have the vehicle drive itself, but the way we look at it is that 43% of them, you don't need anyone in the car at all right, and that is an incredible waste uh, in our minds. It's the equivalent of 60,000 lifetimes that are spent inside vehicles, running around, uh, performing errands or shopping, right? And so we would like to drastically reduce that, ideally, uh, completely remove it. And so we're focusing on goods, and, and I think as you mentioned, Christopher, like one of, the, one of the advantages that you have if you're focusing entirely on driving stuff around rather than people, is that you can both constrain the problem in a way to make it more feasible and you can optimize everything about the system that you're designing for the safety of external road users, rather than what's inside your car. What you know, about active measures?
7: Does it have a like an awooga honk at me and this kind of thing? Yeah.
9: So, so we're I mean we're actively looking at at, at how we how we can alert other road users. Uh, and for us, when when we think about uh, other road users and trying to trying to actively improve the safety of them, the ones we're most concerned about are the most vulnerable road users. So it really is cyclists and pedestrians because our vehicle is much smaller and lighter than other cars. So. And
7: it, in the, max, in the top speed is 35 miles an hour.
9: So right now the top speed is 25 miles per hour. Uh, the next generation which will be coming out later this year can go up to 35, but 25 miles per hour is, is actually a really great speed to try to stick to as much as possible because if you look at the the curve of effectively severity of accidents or likelihood of a very severe accident for a pedestrian versus speed between 25 and 35 is really where there's the kink in the curve right so 25 and below it's very unlikely that you can have a serious uh, injury from from an accident above 35, it's basically flipped. It's very unlikely that you won't be seriously injured uh, in in an event of a collision. And it
7: feels like this is another area where you've usefully constrained the problem because if I'm in an Uber that's limited to 25 miles per hour and I am coming back from the airport, that's a very frustrating experience for me, but my... It, it doesn't matter for the purposes of my groceries.
9: Yeah, exactly, and I think that that's, that's something that we, we get to cheat a little bit, right? So our vehicle can take easier, slower routes. Uh, it could potentially get be far more conservative, so I think one of the complaints that's often leveled at self-driving vehicles is, hey, they drive like my grandparents, right? They're very conservative. That's really annoying if you're inside the Uber driving around. It's great if you're the parent of kids running around the neighborhood and that's a vehicle that you don't have to ride around. And so we, we do think that there, there are some ways that you can solve the problem, provide a really valuable service to customers, but still be incredibly focused on safety. So
7: you're solving the so-called last mile problem in logistics, which obviously uh, you know, everyone is struggling to solve right now, Amazon most visibly. Uh, but you create another problem for yourself, it seems like, which is the last 20 feet problem. So the robot pulls up and does it have like a cannon to shoot my groceries yeah. to my front door
9: or what? Our hardware lead offered to build that, a slingshot. Um, we haven't taken him up on that yet. No, I mean, I think that if, if you look at the spectrum of Uh, ETA effectively for deliveries. At one end there's sort of packages which most of us are fine with them being left on our doorstep. We don't need them in the next half an hour. We don't really care as long as they're there when we get home which which can be a challenge but um, the sensitivity to time is much less. At the other end is truly on demand, right, like you've ordered your dinner and you want it as soon as possible Um, and that's where we have DoorDash, Instacart, Uber Eats. We're focusing more on the on-demand side of the curve because that's, that's actually actually the side that's incredibly difficult to service today economically, and we think we can do it, it's also nicely correlated to when people are actually there, right? So if you've just ordered food and you really want it to turn up, it's much less of a burden. Uh, Manhattan aside, it's much less of a burden for you to meet the vehicle at the curb or in your driveway than if it's dropping off a package and you're not even home.
1: Okay, last one. I'm biased because I was on stage for this one, but I actually thought this was one of the coolest moments of the week. Uh, Imogen Heap, the musician whose songs you definitely know, performed for us using these new gloves that she's been working on for years called Mimu, I think is not a great name, Imogen. Uh, but anyway, these gloves allow her to add effects, change the sound of her voice, and basically control her whole performance just by moving her hands around. Did you get to see this one? I
2: did, and it was amazing, and you did a great job at the interview. But my – like the, the demo was super cool, but my favorite part was when you asked her – I don't know if this is part of the clip you're going to play. But when you asked her something about the gloves and Ariana Grande, which just happened to be over her house <laughs> – yes. And she tells the story about how she's like, well, Ariana was just over and she was playing and she said, I need to have these gloves. Anyway, the gloves. OK, I take it all back. The gloves are cool. And then second, Ariana, Ariana Grande just being at her house was cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do love the idea that she just is sort of hanging out with Ariana Grande. It was like the most natural like yeah. A plus list celebrity name drop I think I've ever heard.
2: Yeah. But it was gloves... like she just
1: forgot that other people might know who Ariana Grande is. <laughs> It was so good. Uh, but, but the yeah. gloves
2: are super cool, and I wish we could get them in this studio so we could be, like, adjusting our podcast levels with just our hands.
1: It was amazing. And and we were out there sound checking before, and, and she was sort of standing up, and she would start something, and then she would go, and she would just be like, no, not that, and stop it, and literally stop the music by, like, putting her hands down. Yeah, so she looks way, like she's making this, like, grumpy sort of, like, but instead by doing that motion, like, moving her hands down, she's actually killing all the music. It was so trippy.
2: David and I right now in the studio just keep moving our hands up and down. We know you can't see it, but we just keep doing it, because that's how she she manipulates these gloves. I also wondered if I could get these gloves to, like, mute people as they're talking to me. (laughs) 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 And I wanted that a couple of times during this last week where I was just having lots of conversations about what's going to happen on the stage and what do you do, what do you do, this and this, and I'm like, mute.
1: You just do, like, the shush gesture. Yes, (laughs) I just need to be in my
2: head. (laughs) Thank you, everyone. It's a
1: Brilliant idea. So anyway, so after her performance, uh, Imogen and I talked about all the different ways technology is changing the way that we make and hear music. I mean, you're, you're clearly pro tech and and creativity, but the the thing I hear from from folks on the other side is that things like GarageBand are are a problem in music. That every song is using the same drum loops and GarageBand and like what? Do you have a sense? Is there any tension between kind of more technology and ease of creation and the actual creative process yourself?
10: I think it's great that anyone can just pull up GarageBand and start making music. Why not? Just like anyone can start writing a blog or whatever, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's great. And hopefully, you know, as and when they start to discover their own idiosyncrasies and how they want to make music that's a bit different and, you know, find themselves in that, then that's a great beginner's tool that's free, I think. Um, and off you go. So I think the, the, kind of the next step really is, is how to start to embrace the human physicality and the, you know, so that you're not looking at a screen and you're not, you know, punching in things all the time, it's voice recognition, it's gestural recognition um, and it's Im- maybe emoti- emotion-led you know led, uh, in the future. I would love to be able to walk in my studio and my studio's like, oh, Imogen's in the room, um, everything pre-populated, oh, she's in this kind of mood, maybe we should you know, select, pre-select <laughs> these kind of world of sounds today and that could be how I begin making a, a piece of music that day.
1: So it's just, you, you walk in, you're having a bad day and it's just strings start playing, just yeah, sad exactly. strings in as soon as
10: you know Or maybe it does the opposite, it kind of it knows what my usual pattern is, because it's kind of algorithmically, you know, figured out what I like to do more often than not. And maybe that day I want to do something really different, so it, it presents me with the exact opposite of what I normally do. Um, and then I can kind of take that wherever I want.
1: Okay. So in, with something like this, I mean, how, how do you even go about thinking kind of how you want this to work? I mean, it, it seems like one challenge of something like this would be not letting the tech itself get in the way. You don't want to be performing and thinking about you know, the Bluetooth latency <laughs> when no, you should well, be thinking about your done performance, that sure. I'm sure. So yeah, like, yeah. H- how, do you, how do you sort of make it so that something like this works in exactly the way that you want it to?
10: Um, by doing lots of performances in front of people with developing tech and they're often going wrong. Um, like, give me an
1: example, what was the, what was the weirdest oh, or oh worst God, thing that happened?
10: Oh so many, so many, so many. Um, what was the worst one? Well, there was one. Well, there's been times where I just haven't been able to perform because the Wi-Fi has been so saturated, so I haven't been able to, you know, find a clear channel enough to, to, to have the connection um, because there's just too much noise in the space. So that's, but that's a problem. Loads of people have, right. is you know, how do we create kind of bubbles of Wi-Fi around where you specifically need to be rather than broadcasting and you know on an entire channel. Um, so. That's something that we've tried to figure out how to do with some professors and universities. Um, haven't got to that place, but we've now started to work with 5G, which is looking much better. Um, and, yeah, I mean, the worst thing, the worst one ever, actually. Um, I was seven months pregnant, and um, I was, I'd was just curated this very big festival uh, at this place called The Roundhouse in Camden, in London. And I, it was a four-day event, but I was so dead set on performing this one particular song that I developed the gloves with, mm. um, which is called Me the Machine. And that we wrote all of the the program, the hardware, the software, developed it so that I could create and perform a song entirely with my hands, um, my gloves. Um, and so I got so dead set on trying to do that song again that I f- basically didn't pay any attention to all the other songs that were going <laughs> to be in the set. And I was also pregnant and I was a bit crazy. Um, so I decided also to start like play the bass guitar on the stage, which I've never done. Um, <laughs> I don't even know my way around the bass guitar, and I didn't know half of my lyrics. I've been so focused on this particular song, this gloves, like this was the thing, and and so I was literally on stage unable to know my lyrics, uh, unable to play the bass guitar, and I, it was like a nightmare. I was kind of woke up and I was, had my gloves on and I was playing this song, which is called She's Who She Knows, and I'd never played it before, and all my band had hardly practiced it because I'd been so focused on the gloves. Um, and I was like... I had this moment. I was like, "What the hell am I doing? Like, why am I trying to play the bass guitar um, in front of 3,000 people?" Um, so I just kind of played a bit, and I was like, "I'm really sorry, but I don't know how to play the bass guitar." Um, <laughs> and I talked about, you know, trying to develop this technology, and yeah, it was a it was a mess. But I so, really respect the confidence, though, to just put, sort of put it on and be like, uh, i figure it out." Yeah, I, I respect that. I don't know. I was just a bit crazy, um, <laughs> but. You know, what came out of that was we we achieved a lot with the gloves during that, that time. And we also kind of developed the software quite a lot around the performance and the speed of between songs and all kinds of things. So, I mean, what really, you know, we're, we're really confident about is as a performance tool, it's really solid, um, it's incredibly, you know, fun to, to play with, and you can just concentrate on being your creative self and, and be spontaneous in the moment. Um, Another point actually, even before that song was when I was doing the first performance of me the machine um, when I, when it did all work because we had different software and different hardware um, and I was reco- I was performing this piece live stream to whoever many people um, like all my some of my fans were pedaling pedal power like in the garden cool. for some energy because it was earth day <laughs> um, and so I was performing this song i 'd only just written it at four o 'clock in the morning because I was dead set on. I only want to write this song when the technology's ready, mm. but it wasn't ready until four o'clock in the morning, the day of the performance. Um, and so there I was writing the lyrics and I was kind of figuring out all the moves. And then I got to the point where I couldn't remember what my next move was, because it was very linear in that time. You had to do this, to do this, to this, to get point. Mm. Now you don't need to do that. You can kind of come in all angles.
1: So you had to kind of choreograph yeah. the song. Yeah, okay. and I was
10: so tired and I hadn't slept for three days and I was like, I just can't remember what I'm going to do. And it was probably only about five seconds, but it felt like an eternity, and I felt like I'd let all the team down. But I just couldn't remember. And as I was doing it, I was panicking, and then I thought, it doesn't matter. Everyone in this room is like, she's making music with gloves. When I moved my hand to kind of do that, or whatever, was like, oh. um, it was making a nice sound. It was going twinkle, twinkle, you know, and <laughs> the bass was going, wow, <laughs> and I could play the drums whenever I wanted and catch my voice. So I was like... It doesn't matter, like normally with electronic music you'd be cacking yourself because you'd be like, how do I get out of this? But you had everything at your fingertips. And so I could just take that time, about five seconds or whatever it was, and, just, and then think about how to get out of that situation and finish a song. And it was in that moment that I realized it wasn't about control. I didn't want control. I thought it was all about control all control. Um, but it's actually just about freedom, you know, freedom of expression and that moment of, of just to just to go where you humanly want to go. Do um, you feel like it's changed
1: the way you make music in the first place? Like has your songwriting process changed since you've had the It has,
10: yeah. Um, before it's been more like there's the production of the song in the studio and that's the way it's got to be on the live show because... That You can't get that amount of dexterity um, that you need to perform a song with the kind of production level that I like to do in my studio um, with one person um, or even with a band. You need so many other um, kind of access to different parameters and changes to give it that fluidity that you get in a production studio. So but now I don't I don't have to worry about that. Now I can be like, well if I want to have a backwards reverb and start looping my voice and then mash up some piano chords I can. Um, so I suppose it's getting it's getting the integration of the, the studio performance and the live performance around the kind of I like the kind of let very layered complex sound. Um, uh, so I can, actually, I can give that now at the live performance. But yeah, you also feel like part of the battle, not a battle, but hopefully the trend, is to develop software that thinks about you more as a human rather than as a you know noughts-and-one-on-off linear fashion, um, thinks of you in this kind of full space, um, so that we can then start to, to you know, have it get even more out of our software.
1: And that is a wrap on the future of everything festival and our show for the week. Thank you, Joanna. It's lovely being here with you in person. We should do this more often.
10: I do like it, but it is also
2: a little weird for me.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll get three thousand miles away I, from each other I, for the next time.
2: I've been podcasting alone in a studio. You at least have the guest every week that you sit and talk to. I'm That's just true. alone in a room.
1: <laughs> but at least now the room is nicer.
2: The room is so much nicer. It smells like a new car in here. I know, it's
1: very exciting. And it's things like... work. You know, knock on wood, but things work. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, thanks also to the whole team behind the Future of Everything Festival and all the speakers and panelists we had on stage. Thanks to Becca and Tanya, our producers, and Wilson, our editor. And thank you for listening. Uh, we'll be back with our regularly scheduled programming next Friday, so make sure you subscribe to Instant Message anywhere you get your podcasts. As always, if you have feedback or ideas, the best way to reach us is to email us, and we have a new email address. It's instantmessage at wsj.com, which you can probably remember. Uh, oh, and one more thing. Uh Rather than me say goodbye, we're going to let Trevor Noah do it Uh, because, as you pointed out, Joanna, Trevor Noah maybe said the single most profound thing on stage that anyone else said during the whole festival, right?
2: He's a genius.
1: Yeah, and it wasn't about Bernie Sanders literally stealing Iowa. Oh,
2: yeah. That was Uh, really amazing. So
1: so with that, we're going to let Trevor Noah take us out by telling us about the future.
11: I think sometimes the trap we fall into as human beings is that we use patterns to define the future when in fact the future is defined by the now. And so when it comes to technology, when it comes to how we're sharing content, how we're communicating with each other as human beings, there is no defined path that that's going to take. You know, who would have called Microsoft starting out, who would have said that that's going to become the global giant that would connect, what, six billion people or whatever it is on different platforms between WhatsApp, Instagram, Facebook? Who would have said that, that they would become one of the most powerful entities in the world? I don't think anybody could have seen that. And so I think if if you're not careful, You forget that genuinely the future is happening right now on a on a very simple level. And then what people do is they create ideas or platforms that connect to the now idea that then becomes ubiquitous. You know? So Uber was is doing what people were doing in some way. People were giving people rides. They formalized it, they created a now thing that then took us into the future. Airbnb. People were sharing people's houses and then they moved us into the future. And so You know, Tinder, we were doing that in real life, Uh uh-uh, yes, Uh -uh. Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh, yeah, Uh uh-uh, yeah. And then they just made it future. And so I think sometimes we forget that, like, that's really what the future is in many ways. It's an extension and maybe a simplification or improvement on what we're doing right now. And so for me, if we focus on the right now, I think the future becomes apparent.